0: Welcome to the Tango Juliet Foxtrot podcast, the podcast all about the good, the bad and the ugly of British policing. If you're interested in how policing works and you want to hear some incredible people talking about what they did in their policing careers, then this is definitely the podcast for you. Sometimes we cover some pretty gory or distressing subjects and there may be a bit of swearing from time to time. So probably best to keep the kids out of earshot right here we go hello everybody ian here welcome back to the time could foxtrot podcast episode 87. i know i've been a bit uh infrequent and inconsistent in terms of putting the podcast out uh, lately but uh, it, frankly i've had a lot going on uh which i'll tell you about in a minute um and i suppose it's better, better lit or uh, inconsistent than not at all, although some might disagree with that. Um, so what I've been up to recently is, as you know, if you follow the podcast, I uh, was involved in a tech startup, which I stepped away from after about two years. And um, I went into a sort of like, okay, what I would do next. Uh, I'm sure anyone who's retired from the police or... Um, Uh, left the police or whatever, uh, anyone who's been in the position of not having uh, gainful employment at that moment in time and you've got a world of opportunity staring at you haven't you and you think okay this is uh, on one one hand it's great because I've got uh, so many things I could do Uh, but sometimes you can be a bit overwhelmed by choice and it's tricky sometimes to know um you know which direction to go in. So I considered all sorts of uh, weird and wonderful things uh, during that period of time and eventually I decided that uh, I wanted to be an employee again. Uh, Having had sort of four years of being self-employed or involved in this startup, I decided that there's a lot to be said for being an employee uh, anyone who has been self-employed will know exactly what I mean. Uh, work can be uh, a bit feast and famine. You have to do an awful lot of work to generate the next uh, contract, and you have to kiss a lot of frogs along the way. You have to waste. You waste a lot of time in terms of business development, chasing down opportunities. Sometimes maybe traveling to London. Uh, having to pay for your train fare yourself, spending maybe a whole day just meeting someone and then it comes to absolutely nothing. It can be very frustrating. And the, You know, the flip side is that the rewards can be great as well. Uh, it can be very well paid when you do get the work and you have a lot of flexibility uh, around the rest of your life. But uh, having given it some thought, I decided to go back to being an employee again. So. Uh, I have been successful in getting a a role, which um, I'm not going to talk too much about it um, at the moment, but suffice to say it's quite a big job and uh, working for a company that is uh, very, very sort of leading in terms of what it's doing uh, and I feel 100% um, confident I'll be able to use all of the skills and experience that I've had over the years. In not just in policing but also in public sector and also in running my own business. I think it's going to be really exciting and I'm going to be starting that next month. But I thought I'd just um, share with you, any of you who have been in this situation of applying for jobs, uh, it can be uh, an incredibly tricky and frustrating process and for someone like me who had been in the same organization uh, more or less for 30 years and then uh, being self employed, uh, to go back to the situation of applying for a proper job again was quite daunting, I've got to say. And, um, you know, particularly when you, you can't rely on anyone to give you any favors, uh, I didn't get any sort of uh, recommendations. I didn't know anyone in this particular company. Uh, It was very much a case of having to put yourself out there and sell yourself. So I'm just gonna give you a few tips uh, learned from my own experience uh, for anybody who is maybe looking for work or if you're in the police looking to change. um, These are my sort of top tips, I suppose. Um, So the first thing I would advise you to do is get yourself a premium LinkedIn account. Now I'm getting not getting any commission from LinkedIn, but I've got to say LinkedIn is incredibly valuable. Um, if you're looking for work, uh, you can filter it uh, along the lines of the various skills and experience, the type of work that you're looking for, uh, location, etc., etc and then you can set up automatic job alerts which will come to you along the the keywords i suppose that you've you've set up Uh, and there's lots of stuff online in terms of helping you to understand how that actually works um so yeah so linkedin uh really important um you also another benefit of linkedin i suppose is that you get to have a look at uh people who are doing Jobs that you think you would like to do, and it's quite uh, useful to sort of, you know, connect with those people, and perhaps uh, just send them a polite message saying, "I'm really interested in, in the job that you're doing. I'd be really you know keen to seek your advice." And people are generally pretty generous with their time, uh, and as long as you uh, don't you know demand anything or uh, uh, you know start kind of um, being a bit weird, uh, then most people will be very happy to give you some advice. Um, So that's really good from a networking point of view. So yes, that's LinkedIn. The next bit of advice I would give you would be be really, really, really clear about the type of work that you want and be really honest with yourself as to what your skills are. uh, what you're actually going to bring to that role. So in the job adverts on LinkedIn, and there's thousands, um, they, they will be quite specific about the skills that they're looking for. And uh, you need to you know look at your own skills and sort of ask yourself, honestly, is, is that something that I think I can do? Um, having said that, uh, they will always ask for um, the perfect candidate in terms of the job description. So don't talk yourself out of applying for something just because you don't tick all of the um, you know essential boxes. So they'll generally have a list of essential criteria and a list of desirable criteria. Um, and if you don't tick all of those, don't worry. Um, they're not expecting that. that's the kind of perfect candidate, isn't it? And and they're never they're, they're never going to find they're no more going to find the perfect candidate than uh, you are going to find the perfect job. So don't be put off by uh, the essentials and desirables. Um, then uh, you need to get your CV uh, or resume, as they say in the states, sorted out so that it is. Um, very uh, clear, well-written. There are CV um, uh, services out there where people can help you if you're not too sure, but there's tons and tons of advice online as to what a good CV or resume should look like. Um, and uh, my next top tip is don't just have one CV. Have uh, Be prepared to tweak and rewrite your CV to um, reflect the specific requirements of the job that you are applying to do because there is no such thing as a generic one-size-fits-all CV. Um, You need to be prepared to uh, make it uh, align as closely as you can to the job that you're looking for. Equally, um, the other thing that companies will regularly ask for is a covering letter. So your covering letter is probably going to be about one side of A4. And uh, generally speaking, the purpose of covering letter is just to articulate why you uh, want to work for this particular company and what you um, believe you're going to bring to the party. and equally, that covering letter, there's no such thing as a one-size-fits-all covering letter, each covering letter, in the same way as the CV, needs to be written um, in a very, uh, very closely aligned to what that job that you're applying for is. So, my final piece of advice, and this is the absolute killer, um, and it I figured this out myself but i'm sure loads of people do this already but i thought i'd give it a go so i applied for quite a few jobs and uh i don't even know how many maybe let's say about seven or eight and didn't even get an acknowledgement from anyone which is quite darn you know quite dispiriting you put quite a lot of effort into into these applications and and when they don't even come back and kind of acknowledge receipt of your application it can be quite um, dispiriting so i then became uh, aware of uh, software which is used routinely by both recruiters and uh, hr departments of large organizations and it's called ats software so that's applicant tracking system ats and basically what that is it's a electronic Um, sort of artificial intelligence driven means of screening uh, applications for jobs. And uh, so basically that, that initial sort of review of application forms, CVs and covering letters and if there's anybody out there in the HR world who disagrees with me, please let me know. But I believe I'm speaking uh, accurately here. A lot of that very first sort of stage of the process is automated, completely automated. A human being does not look at them at all. So in order to um, effectively sort of get through that as, as kind of efficiently as possible, I asked ChatGBT, to rewrite my application form, not my application form, my CV and my covering letter each time you apply to a job. And uh, for anybody who doesn't know how to use Chat GPT, go on the Open AI website, uh, register an account, um, and then you can start using Chat GPT. and And you can ask it, you know, as as I'm sure you know, pretty much any question and um, the, the, the data t- it's trained on all basically the entire entirety of human knowledge including the entire internet up to 2021 20, i believe um, and, and what i said was um, please rewrite the following cv in order to be as efficient and to comply with uh, ats software and so you copy and paste your cv into ChatGPT, and lo and behold, uh, what you get back is something that is way better and reads better, um, better grammar, better syntax, it'll sort out all your spelling mistakes if there are any. shouldn't be any, any, to be fair, by that stage, but it'll sort all that stuff out. Uh, And what it does is it subtly changes the language to make it much more appealing. To ATS software, so when I started doing that, uh, lo and behold, I started getting um, uh, offers of interviews, and uh, and I don't actually think that that is uh, what I did there was um, sort of unethical. I think it's just purely uh, being realistic about how this process works, understanding how the process works, and then. Subtly changing the way you approach it Um, So that's my. those are my top tips for anybody uh, out there who has left the police and looking to uh, apply for jobs or for those who are still in the police want to leave and are looking to apply for jobs So if you do that uh, Good luck to you. Let me know how you get on Right in this episode I have the very, very great pleasure of speaking to Professor Sarah Charman from Portsmouth University, who who has done and is doing with her colleagues some absolutely fantastic work around the police workforce, uh, reasons for people leaving policing, resigning from policing, and uh, her findings from um, dozens and dozens and dozens, I think over a hundred, interviews with uh people who have left the police um recently and it makes for really really interesting revealing stuff which she will tell you all about so without further ado let's get into the interview morning sarah
1: morning ian how are
0: you, how are you? How are you? nice to see you
1: yeah, and you nice to hear you i'm very used to your voice now because i'm really
0: listening to- oh god that's a bit worrying yeah, my, my kids complain about um, when we're driving in the car sometimes and my phone connects to Bluetooth in the car and I might be listening to one of the podcasts. That sounds really narcissistic when I say that, but often when I a new episode comes out, I'll listen to it because I think, well, this is actually the first time I've listened to this because mm-hmm. um, it's different, isn't it, when you're talking to someone. Um and then you listen to it back and you think, oh, I forgot we said that or, oh, God, yeah. I wish I, I wish I hadn't said that or whatever. Um, and they go, oh, God, Dad, you switch it off. I hear enough of your voice without having to listen to it on the car stereo, you know. <laughs>
1: That's what keeps it for, though, isn't it? To put us in our place.
0: <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah. So, okay. listen, um, thanks a million for uh, agreeing to come on. Um, bless you. And I had a bit of a grey moment, didn't I, um, exactly a month ago because I thought it was the 12th of um September didn't I Oh no not the 19th of September and I was um all set and ready to go and then realized that it was I, I was about four weeks early wasn't I
1: yeah it just slightly horrified me with what was going on in September so
0: that's <laughs> fine <laughs> Gotcha. yeah probably gave you a bit of a panic as well but uh, yeah. anyway listen um yeah no it's great to have you on I'm a massive fan of the work that you've been doing and I'm really looking forward to hearing all about it um I know there's lots of people out there who will have you know be familiar to some extent with what you've been doing but I'm really looking forward to sort of getting into some of the detail and for those who don't know anything about what you've been doing then I think it's going to be really interesting so so yeah so anyway for the purposes of those who don't know anything about you do you want to sort of briefly introduce yourself
1: yeah absolutely uh my name is Sarah Charman I'm a professor of criminology at the University of Portsmouth where I have been teaching and researching on policing and the policing organisation for now, almost 30 years, which is quite horrifying.
0: Bloody hell. It's like a life, it's like a life sentence, isn't it?
1: Yeah, less (laughs) for most things.
0: (laughs) Gosh, so, um, so what, uh, let's go right back then. Uh, Obviously it's uh, really super knowledgeable about policing. Um, What was it initially that kind of drew you into that world?
1: Well, Actually, I suppose it was more of a subtle push from my uh, my wonderful father to say, it's really about time you got a job now. You can't be a student forever. What are you going to do? So I applied for a, a one year research assistant post at the University of Portsmouth on a project looking at the Association of Chief Police Officers. So it was a complete baptism of fire, to be honest. I was 22 years of age very inexperienced i was a sort of rail card was thrust into my hand and off i went around the country interviewing almost 100 people in connection with acpo so
0: chiefs oh, wow.
1: deputies past presidents of the association ex-home secretaries all sorts
0: oh my god did
1: i think what bring, really-
0: did you have to bring a like a like a bullshit um dictionary with you just have to try and figure out what the hell they were talking about
1: it, it was tricky at first, I think, but what was so interesting is that I think because I was so young, probably because I was female, I was definitely seen as very non-threatening. So people would go into incredible depth and be really candid with me about some of the things that were going on in policing without realising, I think, that, you know, the tape recorder was switched on and I was taking this away to analyse later. But you know, we interviewed people like James Anderton from, um, from oh, Greater wow. Wow. Police, John Alderson, God's, and God's co-
0: He was God's cop, God's cop wasn't he?
1: God stop yeah and he still had uh, some incredibly forthright opinions even then he was well into retirement at that stage so yeah that was my first foray into uh, into policing and it was absolutely fascinating and from that moment I was completely hooked.
0: Oh wow well, yeah I mean I just can't even imagine what that must have been like for someone of that age to um, meet all of these because this is like back in this is like life on Mars days isn't it really when when policing was A very very different beast to what it is today wasn't it and uh yeah some of those characters i can imagine they would have been pretty pretty intimidating for uh anyone really never mind a 22 year old sort of Mm. yeah
1: i learned a lot though i (laughs) learned i learned the things that you don't expect to learn you know i learned about what chief constables would use their staff offices for mostly can you come in and find the plug socket so they'd be scrabbling around underneath the tables trying to plug the tape recorder in. you know and it was then I got the feeling that you know these were a, a special breed of senior leader in in public sector work um yeah. But completely
0: fascinating yeah I was probably a bit quick off the mark in suggesting that you needed the bullshit dictionary because uh, actually back in those days I suspect there was probably a lot less corporate talk corporate jargon and you know um i think senior policing i was very um you know brutal about that i suppose in my book where i talked about this culture of uh meaningless corporate gobbledygook that seemed to infect policing sort of in the last i don't know 20 odd years so probably back in those days i would imagine that people would have been a lot more plain speaking actually was that would that be fair
1: we were sort of at the cusp of that, to be honest, with our research. There were still the kind of old school chief constables who would talk to me about, you know, if next door's force has got a blue stripe down the side of the car, I'm having a red stripe. You know, I'm not doing anything mm-hmm. they're doing. Very much the chiefs of their kingdom. But then there was definitely a move during the time that we were doing the research into a much more corporate organisation, uh, much more streamlined much more, um, I think, willing to speak with one voice rather than those 43 independent voices. So I think we were there at the right time for really looking at the development of ACPO into Mm. quite a corporate um, body who wanted to be very powerful and wanted to have the influence in the corridors of Whitehall that they subsequently got, I think.
0: Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? I I was invited to speak at a a do um, about six or eight weeks ago. It was for, it was sort of retired, uh, ex-senior officers' dining club. And it was it was like something, it was like a, uh, being sent back in a time machine. Um, and they were all, I mean, there's people who I recognised from many, many, many years ago who had been chief superintendents like back in the 90s, for God's sake, you know, and who were now like, you know, almost pushing Zimmer frames around, um, but still quite formidable individuals who um, had maintained a very lively interest in policing all, you know, in this sort of 30-odd years since they'd been retired. In fact, there was one old chap who was on... Because t- I was uh, I was asked to speak at it after... It's like the after-dinner speak. I mean, they must have been really desperate, wasn't they? Um, and um, there was one chap on my table who was 98 years old... And was a retired chief superintendent he was absolutely brilliant he he drank his he drank his 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 wine out of a saucer
1: <laughs> well, we miss those days don't we <laughs>
0: <laughs> to be fair to be very probably drank his wine out of a saucer 30 years ago but um yeah but it was interesting um you know they were really bemused as to what had happened to policing and just couldn't get their heads around it at all and just didn't recognize the organization today compared to how it had been sort of when they were when they were sort of significant individuals I suppose but anyway, enough of that. Um, in terms of your uh, career then so obviously that was your introduction to policing 22. Um, so how did it sort of um, evolve from then, I suppose?
1: Well, luckily that one-year contract um, was extended um, and I'm still here nearly 30 years on, but I think that sparked an interest to me in the culture of the police, because yes, we were looking at the kind of policy impact of ACPO, but actually it was those culture of senior officers that I was really fascinated by. So I went on to do, and I won't go into detail, but a variety of different projects after that. I looked at um, the interoperability of police officers with paramedics, which was absolutely fascinating because all either of them wanted to talk about was fire officers. Um, mm. you know their interoperability was absolutely spot on, you know, the humour, uh, the, the, the laughter, the, the kind of camaraderie at, at serious incidents, but it was it was their interesting language towards fire officers that I found absolutely fascinating. Squirtus. water um, waterfairies, <laughs> daffodils, a lot of it, yeah. <laughs> um, I've done projects on, on well-being and policing, um, a big one on COVID, but I suppose one of the biggest projects that I've done and, and really honed that interesting culture um, was a project looking at the socialisation of new recruits into the police service. So I took two cohorts of new officers into one force and I interviewed them on four occasions over the first four years of their career because I wanted to see what changed in those early days of, of recruit training. I wanted to look at whether they felt they were a police officer or not, the challenges they were facing, what it was like to learn to be a police officer. And so speaking to them on four occasions over four years was absolutely fascinating in, mm. in seeing how their attitudes change from being a you know, bright, enthusiastic, I'm going to change the world, new cop on day one, to slightly different... A
0: bitter, <laughs> twisted, <laughs> cynical...
1: <But> more cynical, <laughs> yes, but really interesting to see as well who was influencing them. And I think, you know, a lot of that research was looking at the difference between the formal and the informal influences. I think while the police service might like to think that it's all about the the trainers, it's all about, you know, that the specific people that are given the roles of training these new recruits actually it's those informal influences I think which are which are much more important to look at.
0: Yeah it's a really it's a really good point Um, and I've I've grappled with that myself you know to sort of you know ask myself you know is it is it the job is it the things that you're exposed to in the job that makes you turns you into one of those people and I think I've certainly been one of those people in the past and maybe to some extent still am but um, or is it or is it is it a cultural thing is it about wanting to fit in is it it's a, probably a combination of a lot of things isn't it but there's no question is there that um you do change 100% um you know i can remember being very very i was a graduate quite unusual for the day back in the sort of late 80s early 90s um, quite idealistic as you say within 3 years oh my god i'd so so changed you know and, um, and I remember friends saying to me, God, Ian, you've really changed since you've gone into the police. You know, you've become much more cynical. And I said, that's because we're dealing with shit all the time, you know. And we're dealing with the worst aspects of human behaviour every single day we go to work. And it does kind of um, make you quite cynical. But, yeah, I mean, it's it's a tricky one. And it's one of, one of the points I often make is that I think the police laterally uh, have had a really raw deal at the hands of the media very unbalanced reporting about policing and um, I do I do think there's something there about policing need needing to try and communicate to the public and to the media the impact of what people have to do on human beings because I don't think unless you've actually immersed yourself in policing the way you have or, been in the police for a significant period of time and i would say at least three to five years i don't think anyone can ever fully understand what it actually is like to do the job i mean what's your thoughts on that
1: i think i think you've hit the nail on the head there, and i think communication is absolutely key in all of this because i think the police service is not very good at communicating anything to anybody really yeah. <laughs> I don't. Think, you know, senior officers aren't very good at communicating to lower ranks i don't think Communication is one of the key skills that police officers have. What's the best characteristic, the most important characteristic of a police officer? we all around communication. I don't think it's done terribly well. You only have to look at police recruitment campaigns to realise that the communication to the public about the job that the police do is completely removed from the image that they're trying to portray. Yeah. I've noticed recently, actually, there's a new ad out from the prison service about what it's actually like to be a prison officer. And it's all, you know, it's all involving um, fights on the landings, which, you know, maybe mm. is, is one extreme. But I think it's trying to show a more realistic mm. representation of what it's like to be a prison yeah. officer. I think yeah. police recruitment campaigns need to do that because that level of disappointment from new recruits is really tangible. They, no other organisation, no other profession gets that high level of desire, motivation. Uh, organizational commitment in the really early stages of a police officer's career people are going in full of enthusiasm they've often wanted to be a police officer for years and they're almost squandering that enthusiasm by then having a real tangible sense of disappointment that the job isn't what it's
0: yeah yeah
1: communication at all levels is, is a bit awry
0: yeah we i had this conversation with scott hamer who's one of my sort of recent um, pr- I think previous guests actually and and we sort of reminisced about some of the corporate communications in terms of the recruiting um, campaigns way way back in the day which were really gritty um, um, really made you want to be a police officer you know and he described one which I remember back in the day of, of literally um, the black holes of a sawn-off shotgun and a, and a guy behind sort of blurred out in a, in a balaclava mask. You know, uh, pointing the shotgun at uh, obviously you as a police officer and there was another one of a of police officer being spat at, literally the globs of of phlegm kind of captured in sort of freeze frame and really showing exactly what the job involves, whereas you can contrast that with today and they've got these ridiculously corporate, boring, um, uninspiring uh, picture of some um sort of oh is this it's just like a kind of almost like a cardboard cutout sort of smiling um sort of inanely and I just think you're not you're not telling people at all what the job involves so don't be too surprised when they start that they're going to have a bit of a shock you know so
1: and I also think you know I know there's the, there's the danger element, there's the excitement element, but there's also, as you well know, the very, very dull, boring element. So mm. you know, you might be on scene guard for in your entire shift. You might be waiting in a hospital for someone. There are all the you might be sitting behind a computer your entire yeah. shift. You know, yeah. there are the realities of policing that I think somehow need to be communicated a little bit better to people. And I know that police forces are great at saying to young people, you know, come out. Well, you can you can join in on a ride along, but that's not the essence of what policing is about necessarily. I don't think.
0: Yeah, no, no, you're right. Absolutely. So, um, so let's, let's get into the, um, the stuff that you've been doing kind of recently for which you've become quite uh, well known, uh, a sort of prominent voice, I suppose, around the issues of police, uh, voluntary resignations, and, uh, you know, efforts for to sort of support kind of retention. So um, just appreciate there's a lot of work Uh, that you've done on this but just sort of explain for those who don't understand anything about that what what you've been doing
1: well I suppose the spark came from that project that I was just talking about with with young recruits to the service because what surprised me is they were quite early on some of them were saying to me well it's fine it's just a job for now and I thought, well, that, that surprised me. I, having always thought that policing was a job for life, I was quite surprised to hear that from the from the young recruits. So I set about trying to find out what the research was about officers leaving early from the from the and resigning early. And I found there really wasn't much research on this at all. So I approached one force and said, "Could I just have some details of some levers? I'd just like to do a, a, a small project on this." And we did a small project with a survey and interviews in one force area. And we've since expanded that. I'm working with my colleague, Dr. Gemma Tyson, on this. We've expanded this to a national project. And so we've conducted almost 100 interviews with officers who have left in the last couple of years now. Um, And the research has been fascinating. It it was so much needed, I think, this research. The numbers are enormous. Much as I'm challenged on this by those in senior positions within the policing organisation, these are significant numbers. I'm often told it's because... You know, there are more people entering the police service or it's because of uh, you know Gen Z they fly in and out or because people didn't know they'd have to work night shifts you know lots of these reasons are placed on the individual as to why they've left rather than right. looking at it more. So just to put
0: po- just to pause you on those numbers themselves. So it's fair to say isn't it that for the first time in policing history or certainly recorded when it was, since we' gathering this data for the first time, voluntary resignations, uh, now exceed the number of people leaving voluntarily resigning now exceeds the number who retire the, in the normal way via um, sort of at the end of their service, so to speak. Is that, is that about right?
1: That's absolutely right. The numbers have risen by almost 300% in the last 11 years. Now, I know that numbers of police officers have also risen in that time, but even if you look at it in terms of the lever rate, where you divide the number of levers by the number of full-time officers the year before, you're still looking at an increase from 0.8% in 2012 to what is now 3.3% in 2023. So that lever rate is also significant. And while I'm always told that it's much lower than it is in other organisations, that is true. However, this is still indicating that there is a problem within policing that needs to be at least looked at, in order to try to reverse that trend. Because as you well mm. know, as everyone in policing knows, the loss of experience is very damaging to the police service.
0: Yeah, and I would argue as well, just to add to that, I would also, given that I'm someone who has their finger on the pulse of policing to quite a significant extent, and I am I monitor a lot of police social media sites, and I speak to a lot of people and all this, because I would argue that the people who actually leave are Dwarfed by the number of people who are talking about leaving, or thinking about leaving, or kind of, um, you know, or generally voicing a view that says, "I would really like to leave, but um, now isn't quite the right time." Whereas, to, co- to contrast that, um, one of my previous guests, Alfie Moore, the comedian, we we talked about how back in the day, if someone left. It was like all you talked about for the next six months, people just didn't leave the police because it definitely was seen as a sort of a, no, not a job for life, but certainly a job for your full sort of 30 years. So when somebody left voluntarily, it was just like, oh, my God, you know, so. So, yeah. So in terms of in terms of um, your research, um, what are the kind of key themes that were emerging from these interviews?
1: I would say one of the overall themes is that this wasn't around the occupation of policing. I think there was one ex-officer who said to us, the job wasn't for him. You know, policing wasn't for him. He didn't like policing as a as a job. Right. For the vast majority, everyone else apart from that one person, it was around organisational issues. And specifically around a feeling, we've categorised this as organisational injustice. It was a feeling about not being treated properly by the organisation. Right. So that then means that all of those reasons about... They didn't know they'd have to work night shifts or, you know, this is a particular generational issue or it's because policing is a tough job. It is, it's not those reasons. It's because there is something within the organisation itself that people feel they're not being supported. So the four reasons that, that we came up with that kind of fit in that umbrella of organisational injustice are a lack of voice within the organisation, um, concerns about promotion and progression opportunities, uh, thirdly, poor leadership and fourthly a lack of organizational flexibility so those were the those were the four key reasons why officers were leaving the police service
0: okay so just to go into each one of those in turn then so a lack of voice what are we saying that actually means in in sort of practical terms then
1: well, I think, and this is exacerbated by the very hierarchical nature of the police service, but I think it's a lack of voice, particularly for those at the bottom end of the organisation. There was mm-hmm. a feeling that they weren't recognised for the job that they were doing. Mm-hmm. Um, they were sometimes not even known by by line managers or people within their their, their close circle of, of officers. But it was also a lack of voice around decision making. That was either about where they were going to be posted, or perhaps on return from some form of leave, uh, where they might be going, or just anything around their own specific job circumstances. They felt they had no voice in what happened.
0: Right. Yeah. I mean, I think. I mean, I, I, that doesn't come as any surprise to me whatsoever. And um, I think, uh, I think, in fairness, in you know, my own experiences, it, it depends very much on. Who your line manager is, um, and on you know if there's a there is a culture can develop in particular locations, or it's the opposite to the aligning of the planets. It's the aligning of the planets in a bad way, isn't it? So, so it's you can have, um, a a, a poor first line manager, a, a poor second line manager, and a complete tyrant of a senior manager. And if you've got all of those in place, then you're absolutely on a hiding to nothing. You know, and on the flip side, you can have um the opposite of all of that, you know, where you're working in a really supportive culture. And and I can certainly remember times when um, you know, I've experienced both. Um, but I suppose because of you know the culture of the organisation, or not? Some, it's not so much the culture. I think it's it's the carrot and stick, isn't it? I mean, the carrot. It seems to me that the carrot just isn't really there anymore. I mean, and particularly around pay and conditions. I mean, how how much was pay and conditions raised as an issue?
1: Ah, uh, barely at all, to be honest. Really? Uh, yeah. And and I know I've spoken to the Police Federation about this, and I think it's something that they thought would come out very strongly, and it, it really didn't at all. Um, and that didn't surprise. Me to be honest, because you know there's an awareness from officers about what they're going to get paid, and for most about what the pension is going to be. Even though I know for some that changed um, over time, but I think um if you look at what keeps somebody within an organisation, it's it's about issues like respect, it's about recognition, it's about reward, and mm-hmm. I think from our research we would say that police officers are well aware that the reward element of that is fairly limited. You know mm-hmm. they they know that when they join the organisation, so that's not the bit that frustrates them. It's the it's the breaking of the bargain, I think, that people go into an organisation willing to give their all and expect that level of kind of reciprocal support from their organisation. And that's the bond that they feel has been broken. So it, mm. it wasn't around uh, reward. I think that can be the tipping point if there is uh, there are opportunities outside, but it's mm. not a fundamental uh, reason for the the kind of weakening of those ties with the organization
0: over time Hmm. so i wonder why do you think that is then why, if i suppose there's two questions in my mind would this be very different if you were looking at say teaching or the health service don't know um and also um if it is something maybe not unique to policing but sort of more typical of policing. Wonder why is that? Is there something in the people in policing that makes them rather uh, bad at looking after the people? You know, I don't know. What do you thought? What are your thoughts on that?
1: I suppose it clearly comes from the opera- operational pressures that the organisation is under. You know, there are operational priorities that are needed. So it's it's not as easy to, to to say to you know if an officer wants to move to a different shift or wants to have some promotion opportunity it's difficult if there isn't the operational capacity to be able to cover that person I understand that mm. but I also think that the organisation is somewhat complacent about its staff mm. um, I'm sure you will have heard you know if if officers go to a line manager and say oh, I'm I'm thinking about leaving or I'm concerned about this you know there is often the attitude well fine they're recruiting at Sainsbury's or they're recruiting at Tesco's you know where to you know you can go or there's an attitude that you wouldn't get anything else Hmm. so I think I think the organization doesn't value in the past the retention of officers because they always thought there are plenty more where you came from yeah I think now that attitude might be changing given that there are now concerns about the retention of
0: staff yeah I do think uh, I do think that sort of I know the the word gaslighting is slightly overused at the moment, isn't it? But I do think there is that sort of element of gaslighting where people have their confidence really undermined by the culture of policing and certain individuals within policing who will brainwash people into believing that there isn't anything outside policing that they could possibly be any good for. And, You know, it's really interesting looking at some of the people doing some really good uh, work, which is, I've got, I'm slightly conflicted about this, I'll say why in in a minute, but there's people like Tom Wheelhouse and Joe Crocker, Andy Labrum, people like that who are doing a lot of really good work around Um, helping people transition out of the police and finding opportunities and sort of building their self-belief back up again to believe that actually, you know, you've got loads and loads of skills from policing and you just need to articulate your value, I suppose, to a future employer. Um, So, yeah, there is is definitely something there for me about the organisation undermining people's self-belief. I mean, is that something you were hearing in exit interviews? And
1: that came out so strongly, Ian, and many things that I could say about this, but the first we were hugely frustrated by the fact that these the vast majority of these people had not had the opportunity to have an exit interview or or a meaningful one at all. So this was their this was their exit interview, if you like, us doing these research interviews. So they were incredibly emotional interviews Mm. uh, with these people. And it depended on the time period between them leaving and them talking to us some people some people we spoke to had left the day before some people we'd spoken to were in the sort of days and weeks after they left the police service it was very raw it was very emotional and they Mm. were still really lacking in confidence about what they might be able to go on to do Mm. but we also spoke to people who were sort of six months or a year out of the police service and although they were devastated many of them that they hadn't been able to make it work because it had been a lifelong ambition to be a police officer there was also a huge sense of relief that they were out of that situation mm. and that they could now focus back on themselves a little bit and their own personal growth. And a lot of them felt that they would never have been able to be in that position of getting another job or being successful. And they were amazed with their new employers that their skills as police officers were so valued. Mm. And I think that's what police service needs to be aware of. There are all of these organizations mm. that are willing to support police officers in transitioning to different jobs. And these and police officers have incredible skills that are very useful in other professions. The private sector are well aware of this. Mm. I know that the police service is not Google and it can't offer the free gym and the free childcare and the free lunch, but I think it has to look at how it can reward and recognise its officers to yeah. give them that value in their own organisation.
0: Yeah, it's really interesting, isn't it? And um, the I, I was- saying I felt conflicted I mean I'm really uh I really admire what Tom and Joe and Andy and people like that are doing um but I do feel conflicted as well because I sort of think oh god we shouldn't need we shouldn't need these or these kind of companies to effectively um uh, I'm not sure that they're encouraging people are they encouraging people I'm not sure they're encouraging people to leave the police but people shouldn't it shouldn't even be a thing it shouldn't we shouldn't be thinking like that we should be thinking how do we get the very best out of our people how do we keep them in the police for as long as possible we make reasonable adjustments depending on what's going on the rest of their lives um see them as a unbelievably valuable resource for the future of policing because that's my big fear with all of this is that the long-term impact of the loss of um, if you're losing experience at the at the back end of the of people's career, people retiring through natural wastage, so you're losing all that experience and then you're losing a lot of people sort of at the front end of policing the sort of you know three to five year period as well as probably people at that sort of transition point that a lot of people I think in the police have all have always like uh, this sort of ten to twelve year. if you're losing all those people, then long the long term, impact of that I think is really worrying so is that is that something that you've kind of looked at and said okay so what does this actually mean for the longer term
1: I think I think you're right in the longer term it's very concerning for the police service because this loss of experience is, is going to continue to have an impact as more and more officers are leaving so that's that tide has has got to be stemmed somehow mm. there is some good work going on in pockets around the country I know there's the you know there's the national leavers framework Um, I've been working with the MPCC on on developing a way to capture the information around why people are leaving. And my research has informed some of that, which is great. But there's still only pockets of activity. And what what concerns me a little bit is that the police service now seem to be thinking, right, we're going to concentrate on monitoring leavers and perhaps uh, conducting more consistent exit interviews. That's great to know why people are leaving. But then you need to analyse that data <laughs> and you need to move it up at level and prevent people from leaving.
0: Yeah, yeah absolutely. <laughs> if you're gonna put your effort, if you're gonna put your effort in anywhere, I would suggest you need to be putting it in stopping people leaving in the first place. You know? yeah.
1: So there's some good work at the moment going on. Um, I don't know if you're aware of Grace and Manchester police. Mm. Yeah, Mike Russell's um, scheme up there, I think is 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 really, really successful um because it's trying to address the issues before they get too serious. And all the research shows us that. Actually, it's in those early stages of doubt that hmm. you can actually change people's mind. If you wait till the moment where they're in an exit interview and they're saying, no, I'm done, you know, yeah. emotionally, they've already gone.
0: So yeah. yeah.
1: capture much earlier. So I think the, that program is looking quite effective. in growth. So um,
0: I am aware of the work that's going on in GMP. So what exactly are they doing? Is it a case of identifying people who are having a bit of a wobble? Uh, and then getting in quickly to say right okay what's happening um what can we do to improve things etc cetera, etc cetera. i mean what...
1: pretty much they're called stay interviews um and what right. they're doing de- they've set up a separate uh, group of officers and staff who people from around the force can go to and say, you know, I just want to chat about this. There's some Mm. unresolved issues going on. And what Mike and his team will try to do is try and address some of those issues by acting as a sort of broker in between sometimes, you know, the line manager and and the individual officer, trying to to work towards a solution. And their success rate, I mean, when I last, I'm speaking to again tomorrow, but when I last spoke to them, their success rate was over 70% of people who'd requested a stay interview actually remaining within the organisation. So if chief officers aren't convinced by the issue of retention, put those pound signs in front of them. You know, Mm. the the amount of money that is saved by retaining over 70% of officers who've got an inclination to leave Mm. is very financially significant.
0: Yeah, I think it's almost... There's an analogy there. This is probably a really shit analogy, so I apologise if it is. But I think there's an analogy there about almost... um, It's like a a a, a sort of a crisis negotiator um, talking to someone who stood at the top of a building um, and thinking about jumping. And you can either approach that conversation in one of two ways. You can either you can either start out with a position that I want to make sure this person isn't going to jump. I'm going to say I'm going to stand here for as long as I need to stand here and talk to them and, um, you know, build a rapport and all of that kind of stuff. Or you can just turn around and go, you know what, mate? I'm a bit busy. If you're gonna jump, just jump and get over with you know and and I think um, just a little bit of time invested in some of those people, because people, you know, I know I can be, I think we can all be up to a point uh, a little bit petulant sometimes, you know if 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 you're not getting, if you're not if you're not seeing justice in the situation that you are, I, I just go ah, bollocks. That's it. I'm I'm off. I I'm, I can't be doing with this. And and I did that recently with a with a business venture, which was actually hundred percent the right thing to do. But um, you know, it didn't have to end that way. There's other ways it could have ended. And equally with someone's police career, it's a big deal, isn't it? It's 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 your hopes, your dreams. It's the thing that pays the bills and all of this kind of stuff. So so anyway, we've talked about we've talked about the kind of um, lack of voice just sorry I, I should have scribbled down those other three points um you, you talked about it was the second one was about promotion and progression is that right
1: yeah there were real frustrations around that area there was a feeling um you'll have heard it before that people were being promoted based on ambition rather than ability yeah. um real concerns that if their face didn't fit that they wouldn't get the opportunity um and there were real frustrations and i've written about this in relation to gender issues real frustrations about the um temporary promotion schemes in policing so you know that some people would be getting a tap on the shoulder and others weren't and while the promotion system on paper looks very fair and equitable mm. actually the temporary promotion scheme uh, makes that a little bit more challenging so there were, there were real concerns that the ability to progress within the organization just weren't there
0: yeah yeah and and, and that's a i mean that's a it's worth just kind of just considering the numbers so I should know the percentages but i don't but the bottom line is in an organization like the police it's going to be around 85 to 90 percent of the fte police officer um uh, sort of head kind that are going to that must be at constable level i mean that's just a fact of the organization isn't it and in terms of that that pyramid of of um, you know the hierarchy, and then you're going to have sort of I don't know whatever, but ten percent, another for ten percent, sort of sergeants, and maybe you know, and then it gets the numbers get smaller and smaller as you go up to chief constable. I suppose one of the one of the kind of issues for me, and I don't know what the answer is here, are are we at r- risking um, giving people false hopes of promotion by? I'm going to introduce the whole thing about graduate recruitment here as well. By having this graduate recruitment um, kind of process, and I know that that's subject to some sort of flux and change at the moment. But are we overpromising people in terms of the career that they can expect in the police? I suppose that's the question.
1: Possibly, possibly, because as you say, the vast majority of people will remain at constable level. But I think perhaps the police service needs to be a bit Bolder, or a bit more radical about its interpretation of success within policing. Success is always seen as that kind of linear move up the ranks mm. Mm. towards chief constable. And actually the frustration for a lot of our officers was, was that they felt they wanted to progress within the organization mm. and they wanted to do that by specializing in different areas of policing, but that that mm. wasn't seen as promotion. And so whether that kind of uh, horizontal level of progression could be seen to be promotion in some ways. Mm. It, you know, it, it fascinates me about policing, that the, the constant moving around of staff into different parts of policing, just as they're beginning to settle and have an influence. You know, after I've finished speaking to you today, I'm going to lecture some postgrad students about policing. But if someone said to me yesterday, well, you're going to have to do that on, on prisons or the court system, you know, I'd be floundering because it's not my area of specialism. But the specialist skills that police officers learn in different environments uh, are then lost when they're moving around so you've got the loss of experience in different ways going on in policing at the moment so i think seeing promotion and progression in a different way than just that linear climb up the rank yeah. stroke would, would perhaps help in that
0: yeah i, I agree uh, and, and certainly my own career is very much uh, along those lines so i i was i was a pc and a dc for probably um 13 13 14 years something like that um and I was very fortunate in the sense I, I got some opportunities to do some really exciting stuff as a, as a DC. Um, and and I do think there's something there, isn't there? About, I mean, I don't know. Do you think we need to be adopting this this sort of similar system to they have in places like Australia and I believe Canada and where you can have basically different grades of constable? So. Uh, And to be a sort of senior constable or whatever that then, you know, as well as attracting maybe slightly more money also attracts, um, you know, more responsibility because giving people responsibility is most people in my experience, most people get a huge buzz out of that and and they you can see them growing so much in terms of their confidence and their job satisfaction and all of that kind of stuff so is, do you think we should be thinking about that as a as an option
1: absolutely it's back to those three reasons that i talked about earlier in terms of what people you know what, what a retention strategy should be focusing on it's on respect recognition and reward you know and that's where the recognition element of it comes in and mm-hmm. you're absolutely right people will respond incredibly well to to being uh given further responsibilities in any walk of life i was, I was quite frustrated by the uh, social media furore when um mark rowley uh, there was i think it was earlier this year actually that 440,000 pounds was going to be spent on framed certificates for meth officers and there was huge disgust from the public about this and actually i thought this this is important stuff it's mm-hmm. about recognizing people for what they're doing and so you can do that by the production of a framed certificate what whether that might be the right thing or not but you can also do it by re- awarding and recognising people within their own rank so absolutely as you say that that advancement within the rank of constable is really important give people that responsibility that recognition and that's what people are craving in terms of um, promotion and progression
0: yeah I mean particularly as as so many of the sort of um, police staff roles have been hollowed out over the last 10 to 12 years as a result of austerity and this is the thing that people forget don't they it's another part of the jigsaw is that those 23,000 members of police staff have never been replaced to not to my knowledge, they've never been replaced. And um, that has created. Um, well, it's a it's a threat and an opportunity, isn't it? The threat is that it's that it's created a lot more um, tasks that need to be done by someone um, that, that and those people just aren't there anymore. But it's also an opportunity, isn't it, to say to people, to say to police officers, right, we are going to give you responsibility for this, this particular. Um, uh, function that maybe some years ago might have been owned by a member of police staff and I don't know I'm 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 probably talking nonsense but um it just feels to me that there are ways aren't there that we can make people feel more valued in in the organization but so just on the police degree thing what what's your thoughts on that generally
1: there's a <laughs> there's a can of worms um <laughs> I think it came at the wrong time, given what we now know of what was coming down the line in terms of 20,000 new officers, in terms of policing the pandemic. Um, I think the introduction of a new uh, education qualifications framework, although it couldn't have been predicted, was really difficult at that time. I think in principle, there are some very good ideas within that. Um, I think in practice, it hasn't quite worked out um, in many forces in the way that it was wanted Um, and i think now this has been slight the waters have been muddied even further by the introduction of the non-degree route uh, which in my personal view i think was needed but perhaps introduced in a in a rather difficult and challenging way for the police service
0: yes it's always it's always it's always it's never a good thing to introduce to change a process on the back of um an argument, for want of a better word, because the whole the whole subject had become so divisive and toxic and the narrative on social media. And there was all sorts of kind of myths of, you know, things being bandied around of like, oh, you know, I never knew I was going to have to work weekends. It's like, well, seriously, who, who you know, maybe one or two officers might have said something along those lines. So I, I always think it's it's dangerous to. Uh, I think you need to be very calm and start off with a kind of okay so if this isn't working then what is the answer and it's not to do it uh, you know uh, at the stroke of a pen so to speak
1: absolutely but i would i would go further than that really and say we didn't know whether it wasn't working yet because this was announced before any evaluation had taken place of the pcda and the dhep program so i think as you say a, a bit more of a calm reflection some mm. proper analysis of what was working and what wasn't working in the PEqF program rather than just an announcement out of the blue, greeted with whoops from the crowd, which was very political. I was at that event um, to to you know greet the uh, demise of the degree route. so I, I think it's disappointing Sorry, the way what
0: event what event was that?
1: Uh, that was at the National Police Chiefs Council's annual conference last November.
0: All right, okay. so. Um, the um, announcement secretary. was made by the Home Secretary, was that Priti Patel at the time? Was that Swiller Braverman? I can't remember.
1: I'm pretty sure that was Pretty Patel. Yeah. Made that yeah. Announcement. So so
0: that was obviously went down well, To played well to the crowd, I suppose, then?
1: In certain parts of the crowd, yes, because the police and crime commissioners were there and I think it went down particularly well with a select group of, of those. Um, but I think you know more consultation with the organisation before that had happened, particularly the College of Policing. I think would have been appropriate, and I think the police hmm. service, you know, the policing organisation itself, were poorly treated in all of that. I think.
0: Right. So, um, as you know, I'm I'm kicking myself for uh, for not um, making a note of your four points. The third, the third one, so after promotion and um, progression, what was the what was the next one?
1: Uh, the third one close to your heart, I think, Ian, was around poor leadership.
0: Ah, there we go. Excellent. Yeah. Well, you know, we could talk all day about that. Um, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I. The thing is, I've got to. I've got to be. I've got to caveat everything I say. But I'd say, was I the best? Was I the best police leader every day of my service at every rank I was at? Probably not. You know, I probably was. I think there was probably certain ranks I was very good at, and other ranks maybe less so. Um, So I think none of us can really, you know, look ourselves in the mirror and say we were, you know, the best police leader ever. But but I'd say what I would say is is um, there was a there was a hell of a lot of, in my experience, really toxic characters in in police leadership. Um, So anyway, let's not talk about my career. Let's talk about your research. Um, what were the key sort of themes coming out from the leadership thing then?
1: It was across the board, actually, in terms of leadership. So it was immediate line management. It was senior leaders within the police. There was a definite feeling that they, I suppose, two different areas. There was a feeling that they weren't trusted. And I think that's mm. something we've heard a lot from uh, from police constables, that they're not trusted to get on with the job. Um, and the second one, that they weren't supported. Um, and that was a very strong feeling that, you know, when things go wrong, when they need it that that support wasn't there from their immediate line management and I have I have a lot of sympathy for for sergeants you know they're under Mm. enormous pressures of work particularly given the loss of experience the huge loss of numbers over the last decade so Mm. they are under enormous pressure they've obviously also got a you know a brand new workforce in many cases Mm. so it's very difficult Um, and they're not given the time and space that they need to support and line manage their team and their offices so I think there is a frustration from both sides on that, but I think that time is needed to support colleagues, particularly in the early stages of a you know what can be a challenging and, and difficult career.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's it's really and this is a, a point I kind of make, and I, again, I'm I'm not even quite sure how the well I have no idea how it would work, but I, I've got a few ideas. I do definitely think that there is a role for uh, experienced police leaders at all ranks, I'm not talking about, you know, superintendent and above, I'm talking about probably sergeants, inspectors, there's a a lot of, I speak to a lot of people who have maybe been out of policing for sometimes maybe just a few years, sometimes maybe more than 10 years, but they're still really invested in it, you know, they still identify as police officers, they still watch what's going on, uh, they talk about it a lot there's a lot of passion out there I think and I definitely think the police service is missing a trick here in trying to harness the passion and enthusiasm from those who have left policing to sort of try and put something back again now call that what you want call it a mentoring scheme call it it just could be a a a friend you know someone to come along and metaphorically put your arm around someone's shoulder as a newly promoted sergeant or a newly promoted inspector to say, okay, how's it going? You know, what are your challenges? Um, okay. Who's your, who are your, who are your stars? Who are your problem children? What are you doing about that? You know what I mean? And I'm just giving them the opportunity to talk and get stuff off the chest and have a sounding board of someone who is genuinely interested and wants to help and doesn't have an agenda and isn't probably even getting paid for it. You know, I mean, does that, do you think that would help?
1: Absolutely. And it just strikes me how many times in the last hour have we talked about the importance of time and the importance of communication. And these, mm. you know, the, these are essential skills but they're quite fundamentally basic skills as well. You know, the, mm. the, as you say, the new Sergeant had that arm around the shoulder And just had that bit of time and space to talk about what's going on, to have a critical friend, to have a mentor, Mm. I think that would be absolutely essential. And mentoring, I think, is is not strong enough within policing. There are, you know, a million different courses that you can go on, either in front of a computer screen or in a room with a load of other officers. But actually, how about that mentoring, that one-to-one support? I know you get that as you move up in the organisation, but how about lower down in the ranks as well i think that's incredibly important
0: hmm. i'm not sure you do get it as you move up through the ranks either to be honest i mean i think it's a bit hit and miss i mean <laughs> yeah i've seen all sorts of different styles of mentoring over the years and some of it is just basically um no i won't even go there the senior officers uh, mentoring attractive uh single women you know what i mean that's a, a an altogether different type of mentoring that that uh used to go on and probably still does, I would imagine. But uh...
1: And that's, that kind of fits in with the if your face fits for whatever reason. If your face fits and someone likes the look of you for whatever reason, because they think you'll be good or they like the look of you, that tap on the shoulder can be very beneficial in terms of sponsoring you up through the organisation. But mm. if you don't fit, if there's something a bit different about you or you're a bit awkward or whatever it might be, and mm. you don't get that tap on the shoulder, you're not going to get that support or that mentoring. So it's got to be much more consistent across the board, because otherwise what you end up with is, promoting the same person type, and you end up then with a, you know, I've heard you talking about it before, a kind of hmm. senior officer cadre who, who are all pretty much the same. They don't hmm. necessarily look the same, but yeah. they all sound the same because they've promoted people who are in their likeness. And That's we've right. got to get away from that. So the tap on the shoulder needs to be more routinely available to everybody, I think.
0: Yeah, certainly the, 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 the sort of the style of senior Senior police officer, I've noticed noted in the last sort of, I don't know, maybe ten years of my service, it just became gradually, gradually, gradually more kind of vanilla, um, totally unwilling to rock the boat, to speak out of turn, to say anything that was going to be career threatening um to the to them. Whereas I contrast that with when I was a worst job I ever had in my in my police career was staff officer and as a sergeant let himself be talked into that one big mistake but i learned a lot from doing it but what i did note, um way back when i was doing that which was was that back in that in those days you would have a room full of superintendents and chief superintendents who were really arguing hammer and tongs about things and that they they had a very very robust um very robust disagreements about things um in front of chief officers which i think was is incredibly healthy um and and you contrast that with you fast forward maybe 15 years later and it was just a bunch of corporate nodding dogs the chief the chief officer would stand at the front of the room tell everybody how it was going to be and chief superintendents and superintendents would just sit there in silence and uh, and that culture culture feeds downhill doesn't it
1: yeah we were talking about James Anderton at the beginning of this interview and, you know, James Anderton probably wouldn't have been promoted through the current system. And that may have been a good thing. But you look at someone like John Allison in Devon and Cornwall, who was inspirational and innovative in his ideas around community policing. And his slightly different take on things probably wouldn't have got him through, you know, the executive leadership development programme and all the promotion hoops that he would have to go through in the, in, you know, the moment, I don't think.
0: Yeah, no, you're right. And there's a fourth point isn't it this is uh what was the fourth point in in your your four takeaways
1: it was around a lack of organizational flexibility
0: right okay so by that i'm guessing um uh is that around sort of um part-time or flexible working hours and et cetera et cetera
1: yeah it it was around three notable areas i think one was around uh people with additional needs or disabilities It was around people who were trying to manage their commitments outside of policing with those inside of policing and also those who were trying to transition to part-time work. And this was all incredibly difficult for these people, not only because structurally the organisation is quite inflexible, but I also think culturally it's quite inflexible as well. That if you're Mm -hmm. not performing your hours, if you're not kind of going along with the cultural norm of extreme hours and presence and presenteeism, and working hard then you're somehow letting the organization down so I think for those who can't work a full-time job or even more than a full-time job for whatever reason it's very difficult for them structurally and culturally to to get by in policing.
0: Yeah it's a it's a weird it's a weird working environment and certainly uh, you know I can remember you know as a sergeant as an inspector and in well at every rank I was I was at there was always certain individuals who if the shit was hitting the fan, they would always be there they were they were super kind of reliable, and there was others who probably would would really like to have been there but couldn't for you know generally family reasons um and then there was those who just probably didn't even want to be there for the eight hours of the day, never mind doing anything beyond that so you know um but I do think policing has got a fairly unique set of demands on the individual, doesn't it? So I'm, I think back to when I was a DI running a, a child abuse unit, um, it was always the Friday afternoon call from social services, you know, the four o'clock on the Friday afternoon. That was, you know, a child, you know, it was either it was a buck, massive buck passing exercise on a Friday afternoon or it was just sword's law. You know, we've got a child at A&E, a broken femur, lots of history in the family. Um, somebody needs to pick this up. And I remember DC's, and, DC's crying, coming into my office and crying and saying, oh, I've got a birthday party tonight to go to. And I worked the last two weekends And and I was like, oh, God, I know, I know, I know it's crap, but some i'm really really sorry but someone has to deal with this you know so i think there's something there something there about firstly kind of almost managing people's expectations about what the job actually can involve but also being fair you know does does that all make sense
1: absolutely and it's it's all around organizational commitment as well i think because there are obviously some people who can't you know they can't stay on they've got a four-year-old at home that can't be left on their own but there are there are also those who perhaps don't want to because they don't feel that the organisation has supported them when they've needed it and therefore why should they support the organisation at that point so you know Mm. I think there's a danger in that organisational commitment um, reducing for officers particularly when as I said earlier when they join it's so high Um, but there are obviously huge operational pressures within the policing environment but it can't be beyond the realms of a computer package or some software or something to work out how you can better incorporate people who are unable to work or don't want to work full-time hours. Mm. Um, you know, I've spoken to so many people who've left the organisation just because they couldn't travel for an hour to do, and they couldn't do night shifts because they were a single parent. For and there, there are ways, there must be ways around this to better utilise their experience. One that I spoke to had ten years of um, child sexual abuse expertise, and mm. she was walking away. From her police force because they just couldn't manage her uh flexible needs
0: hmm. yeah i i can see both i can see both i can you know having having been a, a parent you know myself uh i oh, still am, um and, and understanding the sometimes absolute absolute requirement to 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 get home you just have to there's there's no who's going to look after the kids you know or whatever but equally i also I also understand the the absolute requirement for a policing response to something that's happening right now, and and if and if 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 you aren't going to do it, but somebody else isn't going to do it. Uh, it, well it's just not an option you know that when when you've got a murder i mean this is where this is why so many murder detectives end up looking like about a thousand years old because because they're working stupid hours they're getting dragged out of bed at four o'clock in the morning uh on a regular basis um they're working massive you know huge kind of and it's not just murder i'll pick that one out it could be you could say child abuse you could say um could you say counterterrorism? Yeah, during the middle of a counterterrorism ex- uh, 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 incident, it's, it's unbelievably demanding in terms of the hours and everything. But, you know, they do, they do have long periods of downtime as well. But the bottom line is, if something's happening, you've got to be there, haven't you?
1: And it's not fair to always rely on the same people that can be there. And I know that that can also create tension and, and stress within, within teams. So, yeah, it, it's a very difficult problem. But I think it can be tackled slightly better than it currently is.
0: Yeah, yeah. And I do think, again, going back to that point about mentoring, I also think there's something that needs to be, uh, they need to use a lot more imagination around, call it a police reserve or something like that. Like back in the day in the Northern, Northern Ireland where I grew up, uh, you know, the REC or the REC reserve or the, the army have got the military reserve. They've got people who, if you leave, you know, you, you sign to say you can be called back you know, or you can volunteer to do X number of hours a month or whatever. Um, I just feel that it just doesn't seem to be the same sort of organisational imagination or flexibility that other, like teachers have got supply teachers, NHS have got bank staff, um, military have got military reserves. What have the police got? You know, somebody will say, oh, well, they've got um, agency staff. Well, yeah, it's, I, I don't think it's, I don't think that really offers the same level of flexibility that the police need probably.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: But listen, um, Sarah, it's been really, really, really fascinating. I'm conscious of, of your time. we have gone about an hour, an hour now, but um, just before we finish, um, are you broadly, this is probably an unfair question to ask you, but are you broadly feeling um, optimistic or pessimistic about the future for the police workforce, based on your research,
1: I'll go with that being an unfair question. But um, <laughs> I'm going to turn an eternal optimist um, about policing. It's policing has been, you know, as everyone knows, in the last year or so, been through one of the toughest times in its history. Um, and as Mark Rowley has, as rightly said, it, it'll probably get worse before it gets better. Um, but I think building trust and confidence has got to be the priority of the policing organization. And when I say that, I don't just mean in terms of trust and confidence with the public, I also mean trust and confidence internally within their own organization towards their own officers as well. Mm. You know, we talked a lot today, haven't we, about communication, about time, about justice. You know, that's really important. We know all the research and police officers are all trained in procedural justice techniques to do that with when they're talking to members of the public out in the street in terms of giving people a voice, giving them time giving them respect and recognition. Mm-hmm. Yet they don't seem to do that quite so well within the own within their own organization. So mm-hmm. I think there's a tendency in policing to think about what what bit of kit can we can we find to solve this problem. Actually I think it's much simpler than that. I think it's around those ideas of justice, around fairness, around time, around communication. And the research on fairness is incredible. Yeah. People who feel that they are police officers who feel they're being treated fairly are much more likely to have higher levels of well-being. They're much more likely to follow procedural justice styles of policing, believe in democratic policing, less likely to be corrupt, less likely to use force wrongly. There are a whole host of advantages of treating people fairly. Mm. So I think it really goes back to those basic ideas of trust, confidence, communication and voice internally, Mm. but also externally as well. So I think I am still
0: optimist (laughs) that's very diplomatic of you no no I, I, I still remain you know for everything I say and have said I still remain optimistic about policing because for the reason being the reason being it has to improve it has to because it's the only police service that we've got and if the police service isn't doing the job that people want it to do right now then something needs to change doesn't it um, and, and let's keep our fingers crossed that, you know, to make a bit of a political point, let's get hope to see the back of this dreadful government uh, next year. And and certainly there's noises that Labour are making or um, I'm I'm not particularly, I don't really care of Labour, Conservative, whatever. I, I, I do care, though, about public safety and um, the, the evidence of the last 13 years. It speaks for itself in terms of what's happened to policing and public safety. So things can only get better, I suppose. But yeah. Um, Listen, um, well done on everything that you've done. It's absolutely fantastic work. Um, really, really important contribution to, um, you know, the sustainability and the success of the organisation in the future. I, I dearly hope and wish that um, senior people in policing and the Home Office pay great attention to what you're doing and, and it's used, uh, you know, as a springboard for positive change so thank you very
1: much
0: thank you ever so much and uh, hopefully we'll catch up as I'm about to start work back as an employee next month my god Uh, and I'm really looking forward to it actually um but yeah I can't say too much because of the nature of the work but um but yeah looking forward to and if I bump into you at a conference or whatever I'll buy you a drink (laughs)
1: brilliant that sounds good (laughs) nice to chat
0: you take care Sarah all the best (laughs) bye-bye
1: He was often in our street. We used to smile and wave at him while walking on his beat. But now we never see him. It really makes us frown. No longer do we feel that we're the safest street in town. Oh. Ooh, ooh, <laughs> ooh, ooh. Ooh, ooh.